Welcome to Healing Hearts, Empowering Critical Care Providers. The information provided in this podcast is general in nature and is intended as a training tool for Children's Hospital and Medical Center personnel. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Complete information regarding the podcast, including its limitations on usage, is available under the episode description. I'm Dr. Laura Ortman, and welcome to Healing Hearts. I'm an intensivist at Children's Hospital and Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska. In today's episode, we are going to be discussing pulmonary atresia with intact ventricular septum, abbreviated PAIVS. This heart lesion is uncommon, making up less than 1% of congenital heart defects, but I think it's interesting. This heart defect varies in severity, with some children going down the single ventricle pathway and some getting a full two-ventricle repair. We'll talk about why that is and what that means for our management in the ICO. So what is PAIVS? Well, based on the name, it's a heart with pulmonary atresia and no VSD. But at the risk of making myself sound dumb, I'm going to confess something in case people like me are listening. I managed to make it through all of medical school and residency without really knowing what the word atresia meant. Somewhere I had gotten it into my head that atresia was just another word for stenosis, for narrowing. That's not right. Atresia is the complete absence or closure of something. So for pulmonary atresia, there's no connection from the right ventricle to the pulmonary arteries. There may still be a pulmonary valve there, but it is closed, described as plate-like. This is different than absent pulmonary valve where the opening is present with no valve tissue. This is a completely different heart disease, and I'll talk about it in a future episode. So how do the lungs get pulmonary blood flow after birth? There has to be a patent ductus arteriosus, or PDA, where blood can flow from the aorta to the pulmonary arteries. The next part of the lesion's name is intact ventricular septum, meaning there's no connection between the right and left ventricles. This is a vital fact for this heart's physiology, and a patient with pulmonary atresia with a VSD will be very different. What happens when there is not a VSD? Blue blood comes back from the body to the right atrium, and some of it crosses that tricuspid valve to the RV. But there is no way out of the RV. Most of the blood coming into the right atrium crosses an atrial septal defect into the left atrium when it mixes with the red blood coming back from the lungs and exits the heart out of the aorta. An atrial septal defect is mandatory. And this makes this heart a total mixing lesion before surgery, where all the blue blood and all the red blood mix and go out together. Now let's get back to the right ventricle and talk about what is happening inside there. As I said, some blood will cross a tricuspid valve, but most will not. Heart chambers need flow through them to develop properly, so the RV will be small. It will be thick, since it has been trying to pump against a closed pulmonary valve. It will also be under high pressure due to the blood not having an outlet. This high pressure results in RV to coronary sinusoids, and those are what makes this heart different from all the others we have talked about so far. To understand sinusoids, we have to take a step back and think about fetal development of the coronary arteries. The coronary arteries normally come off the aorta and are the main blood supply to the heart muscle, the myocardium. But they don't develop immediately in fetal life. Initially, blood to the heart muscle comes from the ventricle itself by passageways in the heart muscle called sinusoids. With normal anatomy, as the coronary arteries develop, the sinusoids disappear. In PAIVS, however, 
the high pressure in the right ventricle prevents these sinusoids from going away, and the connections between the sinusoids and coronary arteries can develop. These are called RV to coronary artery sinusoids. Whether or not your patient with PAIVS has sinusoids is important to know, but what we really need to know before proceeding with surgery is if there are parts of the myocardium that are only getting blood from the sinusoids and not from the coronaries. You see, the patient can have sinusoids, and as long as all the myocardium is getting flow from the coronary arteries, we are probably not going to worry as much about the risk of ischemia. But the patient may have RV-dependent coronary circulation. What this means is that there are parts of the myocardium that are only getting blood from the RV sinusoids. No blood is coming there from the coronary arteries. Whether or not our patient has RV-dependent coronary circulation matters because it changes their operative choices. In PAIVS, one of our options may be to open up the pulmonary valve and allow the right heart to pump to the lungs like it is supposed to. That will decrease the high pressure in the RV. If the patient has RV-dependent coronary circulation, the blood supply to this part of the heart muscle will then decrease with the pressure decrease, causing ischemia and death of the muscle. We don't want that to happen, so we have to know before surgery whether it is safe to decompress the RV. Sinusoids can be seen on echocardiogram, but to really know if there are parts of the myocardium that are dependent on them, they need a cardiac catheterization. So most all patients with PAIVS will have a cardiac cath prior to their surgery. PAIVS is usually diagnosed prenatally these days, since there is only one outflow tract coming from the heart and there is a significant difference in size between the two ventricles. When this baby is born, they are going to be cyanotic. This is a mixing lesion. But as long as the PDA is kept open with prostaglandins, they are likely to appear fairly healthy. These babies will fit into one of three groups based on right ventricular size and coronary flow. Which group they are in will determine what surgery they can have. Group number one. The patient has RV-dependent coronary circulation and a very small RV. That means we cannot safely decompress the right ventricle. We can't open up the RV outflow tract. This group will have to go down the single ventricle pathway. For their first surgery, they need a dependable source of pulmonary blood flow. For most patients, that will mean a shunt from the arterial circulation to the pulmonary arteries, usually a BT shunt. We have talked about BT shunts a bit in a previous episode, but those were in conjunction with other repairs. This would involve placement of a BT shunt along with ligation of the PDA. There is no cardiopulmonary bypass involved. That means there is no systemic inflammatory response caused by bypass. But I must warn you, Patients that are only getting a BT shunt are some of the highest risk patients we take care of. Patients with new BT shunts have multiple risks, several of which we discussed in the Norwood episode. I suggest you review that episode because some of the risks are the same. First, pulmonary overcirculation, meaning too much blood flow going to the lungs. This is common at first, as the shunt may be a bit too large after surgery. The baby is going to grow rapidly over the next few months, so the shunt needs to be large enough to accommodate that. But at first, there may be too much pulmonary blood flow, and the saturations will be higher than the 75 to 85% that we are wanting. Why is this a problem? Increased blood flow to the lungs decreases how much blood flow goes to the body. This results in decreased diastolic blood pressure and potentially low flow to the coronary arteries and the organs. It also makes the heart work harder, as it's having to pump enough blood to supply the body and the extra blood flow to the lungs. So if we can, we try to keep the saturations within goal. If the patient is getting extra oxygen, turn it down. Avoid agitation and hypertension. 
which can push more blood to the lungs and away from the body. Our second postoperative concern with the BT shunt is decreased pulmonary blood flow due to obstruction of the shunt. This can range from narrowing that results in your patient having saturations less than 75% to complete obstruction with no pulmonary blood flow. BT shunts do clot, and the highest risk time is in the immediate postoperative period. What will you see at the bedside if this happens? Sudden, deep desaturation along with loss of entitled CO2. Your patient's blood pressure may initially go up, since the blood that can no longer go to the lungs will go to the body. But as the desaturation continues, eventually the myocardium will become ischemic and the patient will code. When you examine the patient, you will no longer hear the shunt murmur. This is a surgical emergency and in most cases will require reopening the chest. Once this patient in group number one recovers from their BT shunt, they will continue down the single ventricle pathway with the Glen and the Fontan. The episodes for those two surgeries are relevant for PEIVS as well. The one exception is if the patient has signs of myocardial ischemia, which can still happen after the BT shunt even if we did not compress the RV. This patient may require a heart transplant evaluation because mortality with ischemia is high. We're going to skip ahead to group number three. These are babies with an adequate sized RV and no coronary abnormalities. The RV will still be smaller than normal, but it is felt to be large enough to do the job of pumping blood to the lungs. These patients can have a two ventricle repair. The RV has a well-developed outflow tract with membranous pulmonary atresia. Essentially, there's a membrane at the pulmonary valve which is preventing blood flow to the lungs. This membrane can be opened in the cath lab, providing a path to the lungs. There will be pulmonary regurgitation after the procedure as there is no functioning valve tissue, but that is okay for the short term. After the procedure, the RV will still be thick and stiff. In fact, it's not uncommon for the RV diastolic pressure to be high enough that there is right to left shunting across the ASD and for the patient to be cyanotic. The ASD will likely be left partially open so that the patient can shunt and maintain cardiac output. Cyanosis in this case is okay, and you should have a talk with the surgical and ICU teams regarding appropriate saturations for your patient. The patient may act similar to a tetralogy of Fallot patient, requiring a high CVP and fluid boluses to maintain blood pressure the first few days after surgery. They are at low risk for pulmonary hypertension, but leaving them on oxygen can help make the RV's workload less, so I would recommend it. Now that it can pump freely to the lungs, the RV will relax over time and the saturations will improve. At some point in the future, they will require further work on their RV outflow tract, but will likely do well as a two-ventricle patient. Now back to group number two. This group comprises of patients between groups one and three. There are no coronary abnormalities, but the RV is small and may not have a well-developed outflow tract. It may not be clear at first which pathway the patient will go down. So our short-term goal is to provide adequate pulmonary blood flow while giving the RV the opportunity to grow. We'll start with opening up the RV outflow tract, which will be done in the OR as there is obstruction at multiple levels. The RV is small and stiff enough that another source of pulmonary blood flow may be required. This will be either a BT shunt or a PDA stent. This patient will be cyanotic. Remember when I said that opening up the RV outflow tract leads to pulmonary regurgitation? This extra blood flow coming back down into the RV can help it grow. In a few months, the infant in group number two will come back and we will evaluate whether the RV has grown enough for a two ventricle repair. If it has, great! The surgeon can close the ASD and remove the extra source of pulmonary blood flow. If the RV has not grown enough, the next question is, 
can it handle half the pulmonary blood flow? This can lead to a one and a half ventricle repair. First, the patient has a Glen shunt placed. So the superior vena cava is attached to the pulmonary artery. Now all the venous return from the upper body is going directly to the lungs and skipping the heart, just like a single ventricle glen. Next, the ASD is closed. That means the blood returning to the heart from the inferior vena cava is going through the right heart and out to the lungs. The right ventricle is only having to pump the blood from the lower body and thus does less work. The patient is now pink. While it isn't a full two ventricle repair and the patient has all the complications associated with the glen, they will not need a Fontan. Fontans have significant long-term complications, which this patient gets to avoid. So this episode about PAIVS wasn't as straightforward as some of the past episodes, since there can be a wide variety of anatomies and options for these patients. I divided the patients into three groups. However, there can be a lot of variety in anatomy and physiology between these, but that's why I like this lesion. If you are getting a patient from the OR or the cath lab with PAIVS, here's the things you should know. One, how big is the right ventricle? Two, do they have coronary abnormalities? Three, what procedure did they have done? Four, what is your saturation goal? I hope you learned something today. We'll go with something a little simpler next month and talk about ventricular septal defects, VSDs. See you then. For more information about Children's Hospital and Medical Center, visit childrensomaha.org. Thanks for listening to Healing Hearts, empowering critical care providers.